Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years, and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit AveMariaPress.com for a wide selection of spirituality books, classic Catholic literature, and even books for families. You can also find podcasts and free downloadable Catholic content. Visit AveMariaPress.com and receive 25% off your order with code REDEEMER. Ave Maria Press, helping people to know, love, and serve God. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. Cases with issues of religious liberty regularly make their way before the Supreme Court, and this year was no exception. In the decisions that the court rendered in summer 2022, there were at least four cases where questions of religious liberty were adjudicated. If you have been listening to our show for some time, you may know that we regularly create episodes about religious liberty cases whenever the Supreme Court decides them. And our resident expert and guide to understanding these cases and the impact of the decisions is Professor Rick Garnett of the Notre Dame Law School, who is the founding director of the program on church, state, and society, as well as a fellow of the Religious Liberty Initiative. This year, Rick has joined me for two consecutive episodes, with this one being the second. In the first episode, right before this one, we talked about the decision in the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe v. Wade. Now we will talk about a host of religious liberty cases concerning state funding for school choice, the right to religious expression for government employees, non-discrimination on the basis of religion for private speech in public spaces, the religious rights of prisoners on death row, and even a non-case about religious exemptions to vaccination mandates. I hope you will find this conversation as helpful and educational as I do. As for me, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Rick, thanks for hanging around. Welcome back. Thank you. So in our previous episode, we talked about the big Supreme Court decision in summer 2022, at least the one that got almost all the headlines, which was the Dobbs case, which effectively reversed Roe v. Wade. That case was not a religious liberty case, but several religious liberty cases were on the docket this year, and these come very close to the heart of your scholarship and expertise. So I'd love to talk about some of these religious liberty cases, beginning with Carson v. Macon. In this case, the court ruled that the state may not exclude religious schools from private school choice programs. Tell us about this case and what the decision means for religious liberty. Sure. And you know this, this case, I got to confess, is kind of uh, special to me for two reasons. One is that the new Religious Liberty Clinic at our law school here at Notre Dame, we filed a brief in that case, and I got to work with some of some of my students on a brief, and we argued to the Supreme Court that equal funding of religious schools was required, and, and that position won out, so we were happy. And then in my own legal career, I participated in a, in a lawsuit 25 years ago challenging this main program, and we lost. Uh. And so to see now, after all these years, the position that we unsuccessfully advocated for back when I was a real lawyer is, um, <laughs> is, is, is delayed gratification. Delayed yeah, gratification. Yeah. So what the case is, Maine, as, as you probably know, is, is a pretty rural state, and there are a number of school districts that don't manage their own high schools. 
And so what they do, because the state has a uh, – every kid has a right in the constitution to a, a public education, mm-hmm. a publicly funded education, mm-hmm. is the state has for many years said if you live in a district without a high school, you can get public funds to help pay your tuition at a private school. And the private school doesn't have to be local. It doesn't even have to be in Maine. People have used this money to go out of state, wow. to go out of the country. Yeah. But they, they had a condition attached, which was you, you couldn't use it at a religious school. So, again, you could use it at Choate or Andover or Exeter, but you couldn't use it at St. Cecilia's or whatever. And so we challenged that. Not, not just – I shouldn't say we. The, the plaintiffs did. We helped them. And we said in light of the court's recent decisions involving non-discrimination in the context of school funding, Maine is not permitted to say to these beneficiaries – Here's a benefit, but you can't you, you lose it if you choose a religious school. Right. And we're talking about qualified, accredited religious schools that are providing a, a good education. And the Supreme Court, in keeping with some of its earlier decisions, in my view correctly, said, no, that's that's discrimination and that violates the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. Now what Maine said in response was, well, look, we shouldn't be required to fund religious education. I mean, sure, states can have school vouchers if they want to, like Indiana does, Ohio does, Wisconsin does, but we don't want to. So we should be allowed to have a stricter separation if we want to. And the court said, no, your desire to make sure that you don't fund accidentally any religious schools doesn't justify discriminating against the parents who choose them. Mm. Now, one of the sort of interesting wrinkles in the case, some, some critics have said, well, this is the court effectively told Maine they're required to fund religious schools. It's not quite true. They're not required to. They could say we're only going to fund government-run schools. They're not required to have this particular voucher program, exactly. in other words. Right? Yeah. The idea is once you decide to open up your funding program to private schools, you can't then discriminate against religious schools. And now it's interesting how Maine has reacted and this is kind of the subtext of the case, is yeah. they've reacted by saying, okay, we're not going to exclude religious schools categorically, but we are going to exclude schools or they're proposing to exclude schools that don't have open admissions. And I think the theory is that for a lot of religiously affiliated schools, they want to be able to admit students on the basis of shared religious yeah. faith. So we'll see how yeah. that plays out. But but this this main case was kind of the culmination of a process of a number of cases over the last five years where the justices have have continued to say that when the government is dispensing benefits to qualified recipients, it can't single out religious recipients and say, oh, you don't, you don't get them. Everybody but you. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So when Maine in their maybe revised plan now as it's formulating is saying you have to have open admissions – what about some of these schools that you mentioned earlier that are not religious, but Exeter, for example, that has competitive admissions? Is that not what – are they allowing for that? Yeah, they, I think they would. So the idea, what, what, what the critics are concerned with and what I think some of the main regulators are concerned with – and again, they don't always say this explicitly right. – is what they regard as discriminatory policies. So they're worried about you know, faith-based schools that say wouldn't admit – a child whose parents were in a same-sex marriage or, or, wouldn't, or wouldn't hire a teacher who was in a same-sex marriage. That, that's kind of the subtext okay. in a lot of these cases. What do you think how, – how well do you think that would stand? So this is a, an area – it is famously or infamously the, the most confused and confusing area of constitutional law is what are the limits 
on the government's ability to attach conditions yeah. to the money it gives out. Yeah. And so I, I, I genuinely just don't you know. just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but we might be talking about that yeah. next year or two yeah. years from now yeah, in we our, well. annual, our annual conversation here. So you had you'd mentioned there in passing that this decision was in light of previous Supreme Court decisions, more recently ones in which the court had made clear that the Constitution neither requires nor permits discrimination simply on the basis of religion and education funding. Could you just give us a brief overview of how this clarification has developed through some of these recent cases? Yeah, it's, uh, it's if you step back even more and look at kind of a, you know, 40 or 50 year arc, it, it is quite striking the extent to which the court has evolved on this, in my view, evolved in the correct direction, but, you know, others would disagree. If you went back to the early 70s, the justice's position was that the Establishment Clause didn't permit any aid to kids who were attending religious schools. Mm. There were lots of efforts in the 70s and into the 80s, and this was, these came up under Democratic administrations. The LBJ was a big fan of this. Father Hesburgh was involved in these efforts to allow kids who were attending parochial schools to get the same education benefits that public school kids were getting, right. whether that was free lunch or you know, remedial education or what have you. And the court, you know, not consistently, but often struck those down. Sometimes the law moves slowly, but you get to a, the early 2000s. There's a case called Zellman out of Ohio where the court is reviewing Cleveland's school choice program and abandons that. And this was an opinion by Chief Justice Rehnquist. The court says that school vouchers are okay. It doesn't violate the separation of church and state to let a parent use a benefit at a religious school just like, you know, kids use federally funded grants to go to Notre Dame, right? Yeah. So that was the law. You know, school choice is permissible. Then you fast forward a little more to, uh, I believe it was 2017, case out of Missouri, where Missouri had this interesting little program where they were recycling tires, and they would chop up all the tires into that, you know, that little soft yeah. uh, sawdust you get for playgrounds. And they were basically saying, we'll give away this soft stuff <laughs> to no. community groups if they want to make their playgrounds more safe. Yeah. But you can't participate if you're a religious group. <laughs> you can't have our chopped up tires. Yeah, yeah. You can't have our chopped up tires. And the, and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't exclude yeah. the Lutheran daycare from the chopped up tire Chopped program. up tires are for everyone. Yeah. This this decision wasn't just conservatives versus liberals, whatever. It was it, it was crossover. Then a couple of years after that, out of Montana, there was a case about, again, a, a sort of a tuition scholarship type program that excluded parochial schools. Mm-hmm. And the justices, again, this time it was partisan divide, said that uh, that violates the non-discrimination requirement. It's, you know, looking in the background, a lot of states have these provisions in their own constitutions that are various nicknames, but they're, they're, they're state provisions that prohibit aid to what they called, quote, sectarian schools. Right. These provisions have a history. A lot of them grew out of a kind of hostility to Catholic immigrants in the 1800s. But one result was that, you know, a lot of states had had exclusionary laws, even though the federal constitution didn't require them. Yeah. And what we saw in that Montana case, and then again in, in this main case, is the justices saying the free exercise non-discrimination guarantee doesn't permit you to do that anymore. And that's a big deal. Yeah. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. I am talking with Rick Garnett, professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. He is also the founding director of the program on church, state, and society, and a fellow of the Religious Liberty Initiative. 
Professor Garnett is helping us review the Supreme Court's summer 2022 decisions. This is the second of two episodes in our conversation. The first one focused squarely on Dobbs v. Jackson, which reversed Roe v. Wade. And this one, we're focusing on some of the religious liberty cases that were before the court in the summer of 2022. So a second case maybe we can talk about is Kennedy v. Bremerton. This had to do with a public school football coach who the question was whether he had the right to pray even while at work. What did the court decide and why did they decide it? Yeah, so Coach uh, Joe Kennedy had a practice of at the end of the game going to the 50-yard line, taking a knee, saying a prayer. And beyond that, there's, as you might have seen in the commentary, there's, and, and frankly in the justices' opinions, there's kind of a disagreement about what else was going on? Mm. You know, he'd been at the school for several years. There'd been earlier history of, you know, locker room prayers or other things. And then there's a debate about whether the the three football games that resulted in his firing, whether that should be the court's only focus or whether they should be looking at things that happened way before or after. But the, the, the most succinct version, I think, is that the, the way the Supreme Court majority handled it is to say, Coach Kennedy was told by the district that he was not permitted to pray in a context where he was visible to students. Mm. And he violated that. In keeping with his tradition, his longstanding practice, he went out, took a knee. This, this was publicized, so some people from the community joined in and so on, and he was fired. And what the court did in this Kennedy case is say that it's a two-step opinion, but the court says, first, he has a presumptive free speech right to, to pray in public, even though you're a government employee like – as long as it's not interfering with your duties, you're allowed to pray in public. Mm-hmm. Just because people can see you, that doesn't mean it's the government's establishment of religion. Mm-hmm. Then the second stage was, well, Bremerton said, we had to make him stop because if we didn't, people would think that we, Bremerton School District, was endorsing his prayers. And that would violate the First Amendment if we, you know, because you can't have school prayer. So it's, it's a two-step thing. The court says he does have the right to pray and— Bremerton's firing of him was not justified because, the court says, it doesn't violate the separation of church and state for the school to permit a public employee Mm -hmm. to engage in visible prayer. Now, I mentioned a couple seconds ago that there was kind of a disagreement among the opinions. In my opinion, the dissenting justices and a lot of the critics of this case, they see a different case than the majority sees. What they're worried about is the prospect of public school teachers – pressuring kids into praying because there are Supreme Court cases saying that that's unconstitutional. Sure. Uh, can't have government officials requiring people to pray. And school kids are particularly vulnerable. Sure. We have cases saying no prayer in public schools. The majority was very careful, I think, to say this is not a case where there's any evidence of coercion or pressure on anybody to pray. Some of the commentary has said, well, there must have been because, you know, we all know that Athletes are susceptible to this. Mm. But I think the court leaves leaves open the possibility that, you know, if a coach ever sort of said to kids, I expect you to be out there praying with me or, you know, if you want playing time, you better be out there taking a knee at halftime. That would be illegal. Sure. So the way the court framed it is that this was the coach's private expression and he was permitted to engage in it. What are the – I don't know what the right word is here – can we say, well, like, what are the boundaries of privacy there? So in order for him to have the private expression of prayer, of his religious belief, 
does it have to be silent, non-vocal? Does it have to be it can, you know, it can be in public, it says here. Yeah. But are there is there a way in which it must not become a spectacle? He can't recruit. Like what are the what are the yeah. boundaries of this? Uh, so this is, you make an important point. This context, private's a tricky word. It, it doesn't mean secret. It mm-hmm. means not the government's. Got it. So the fact you can have private speech by a person, which is very public. I mean, um, you know, if if I walk out into the quad and start, you know, talking about whatever I want to talk about, it's private speech, even though people can see me. Mm-hmm. So in in legal terms, when we say private speech, we don't mean hidden away or secret or unseen. The question is whether the expression is treated as the government's or the person's. And these, this can get tricky in the context of when you're dealing with public employees, right? So Especially school employees. Especially who, school employees, yeah. but not just, right? Not just. Imagine you show up at the uh, post office window and uh, the clerk, before she sells you a book of stamps, sort of requires you to listen to her personal testimony about <laughs> accepting Jesus. You know? um, there would be interesting questions there. And, and, and it's also true that the court has said that Governments have more leeway to regulate the speech of their employees to make sure they're doing their jobs. Yeah, right. You wouldn't yeah. want you wouldn't want it to be the case that public employees were like kind of going rogue and, and not getting their work done. So, but the a premise of this decision was that um, this is it wasn't interfering with the coach's duties. It was after the game. the The district was not endorsing it. It wasn't official. Mm-hmm. It was was it visible? Sure. The community came to know about it because there was a lawsuit, yeah. and and the coach put it on his Facebook page. So, yeah. um, so the community knew about it. So it wasn't private in the sense of being secret, but yeah. it was still private in the sense it wasn't the government's, and that's why it was protected. Hmm. It's interesting to me. This seems, at least you know, from my hearing of it, like it was actually well, maybe not actually is the right word, but it's a case in many ways about tolerance, which is oftentimes the cardinal secular virtue, tolerance, <laughs> right. right? And so, in, but in this case, it's of. You could say, in, in the most basic way, the tolerance of this private citizen, in, even in a public capacity, his exercise of his religious uh, freedom. No, I, I think that's um, a useful way to frame it. I was going to be more kind of cynical lawyer Please. Um, yes. <laughs> and say that one of the things this case teaches is that when the Supreme Court sets out rules that are confusing, that makes life difficult for school administrators. So mm-hmm. I actually – don't think that the school administrators in Bremerton, Washington, were like aggressive, anti-religious, mm. you know, looking, uh, trying to make sure that there was no faith in the public square. What they're worried about is because, they, you know, they have limited budgets and they don't want to be sued. And there are lots of litigants out there who will sue school districts if they mm. don't like what you're doing. And the Supreme Court had handed down very uncertain, flexible tests about uh. what's permitted and what's not. And so schools— they often err on the side of censorship, ah. especially with, with in these religion yeah, contexts. Yeah. Again, not out of sort of an ideological secularism yeah. necessarily, but they don't want to get sued. Yeah. And I think one of the good things about this Kennedy case is even though the facts were kind of confusing on the law, the justices – again, I think it did, they did a real service to public school districts. As I said, they, they, they gave a clearer standard for doctrine. They, the, the rule is no longer – if somebody might think that the school district is mm-hmm. supporting that, then it's unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. Instead, their focus was more on coercion. Coercion is not permitted, but the the mere possibility that someone who was watching the coach pray might think, huh, I bet that's an establishment of religion. Yeah. That's not enough anymore. Okay. And, and that will help districts. Oh, that's a, that is a great sort of insight for us here. It, it kind of 
points to the practical kind of gift of the court here, the practical work. This is given cover, not just cover, but clarity to these. Yeah, I have, uh, I have a friend who likes to say that complexity is a tax. Yeah. And so one way to think about it is that this is a tax cut yeah, for, for, the, uh, for, for the school districts because it has simplified things. I love it. I love it. Well, let's talk about another of these religious liberty cases. This is Shirtleft v. Boston. Government officials may not exclude religious, religious expression from the public square. So this had to do with the flagpole in a public square of the city of Boston. And there was permission on various days for – various types of groups to be able to display their flags or different kind of symbols. And there was a man, Harold Shirtliff, who requested permission to fly a Christian flag from the Boston City Hall's flagpole, and he was denied this request. And this this led to eventually the lawsuit that made its way to the Supreme Court. Tell us about this yeah. case. So this – like the Coach Kennedy case, this is interesting because it combines a free speech mm-hmm. dimension and a religious freedom dimension. Shirtliff is different, though, in the sense that all of the justices, you know, the Democrat appointees and the Republican appointees, everybody agreed that Boston had violated Shirtliff's free speech rights. Mm. So this is this is highlighting the fact that in American church state law, cases involving schools are often more divisive than other cases. In this Boston case, as you mentioned, the first step was, are these flags – that were flying from the three flagpoles in front of the the Boston uh, local government building. Are those the government's speech or are they uh, what the the technical term we use is, did the government create a forum for private speech? Mm -hmm. If it's the government speech, they they can fly the flags they want to and they can not fly the flags they don't want to. Right. right? What the court said is this isn't the government speech because you open this up to anybody. I mean, they'd allowed, you know, dozens and dozens of different flags to be flown. And it was widely known that the flags were sort of rotating all the time. Mm -hmm. And the justices had a little fun about the flags of hockey teams and so (laughs) on, you know. And the only flag that was rejected was this guy, Shirtliff, who had one that had a Christian theme across. And and the justices all agreed that once the government creates a space for private speech, it's going back to our discussion about private, right? Right. It's it's not secret. It's on a flagpole. Right. But once the government creates a forum for the expression of private persons, it can't then discriminate on the basis of religion or, or viewpoint. It can't, you know, it would have been unconstitutional if they'd said anybody can fly their flags, but not if you're a member of the Green Party. Mm. Right? Now, there's interesting questions about, well, could they have prevented, you know, if somebody wanted to fly a flag that was obscene or something? Mm-hmm. They, they probably they could have. But the, the Shirtlift case actually ended up being pretty straightforward. But it's it's kind of like the what we were just talking about with the complexity the regulators who denied Shirtlift the flag, the reason they gave was, we can't do that because the Establishment Clause wouldn't permit it and we might get sued. Mm-hmm. Again, there was, there was confusion about this. And what the justices have said is, no, if it's, a, if it's a forum for the expression of citizens, then it's not an establishment of religion if a citizen decides to, fl- to put up a, a religiously themed flag. Yeah. There was a really interesting detail I read about this. Maybe it was from one of the things you wrote. I don't remember. But – after Shirtliff had requested to have his the flag flown and it was denied, then the city came out with its first formal guideline for this practice of basically using the public forum for – as a forum for private speech as you were saying. And the, the guideline quoting went like this. At no time will the city of Boston display flags deemed to be inappropriate or offensive in nature or those supporting discrimination, prejudice, or religious movements – 
Now, am I reading this right if I interpret this guideline as effectively lumping in religious movements with forms of discrimination and prejudice? Yeah, I think that guideline wasn't very helpful. And, you know, that would probably also be itself constitutionally problematic. Mm. I, I, we want to distinguish. It, we, I, think that, I think the government can say things like we're going to exclude flags that are, you know, obscene or threatening because right. that's speech that you're allowed to regulate. Right. But to sort of – once you start picking and choosing among messages you like and messages you don't, that's violating the free speech mm-hmm. clause. Now, their option is to say we are not going to have a process where people can apply to fly their flags. We are just going to decide what flags we want to fly. Right. And that would be – then it's government speech and they can do that. Right. You know, the the government's – way back in the old days when there was like Radio Free America, like the government was allowed to do pro-America stuff. They didn't have to put on pro-Soviet stuff. Yeah. Like they, they can right. pick their message, right. right? But when it comes to regulating free speech, you can't say – Here's a space for expression of diverse views. Oh, but not those views. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest, Rick Garnett, professor of law, concurrent professor of political science at Notre Dame. He's also the founding director of the program on church, state, and society, and a fellow of the Religious Liberty Initiative. We are talking about the Supreme Court's 2022 decisions related to religious liberty in our previous episode of this two-parter. We talked about the Dobbs v. Jackson case, which reversed Roe v. Wade. I wanted here at the end, Rick, to talk about a couple of other cases. Well, one case and one non-case. Let's put it that way. So this one case didn't get as much attention as probably these other ones, but nevertheless, a religious liberty case and a really important case, the Ramirez case. Tell us about Ramirez. Yeah, it did kind of fly under the radar a little bit. And I think part of it was because it was— it was kind of it came on the heels of a, a, a number of controversies that came up during COVID times when people were sort of maybe not paying as much attention to yeah. the court. But it had to do with the the right, the religious liberty right of a person who was about to be executed to have his spiritual advisor or pastor present in the execution chamber. And there's a federal law called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act, which guarantees even to people in prison and even to people who've been condemned of serious crimes to, to have some religious freedom rights. And there was a, there were a series of cases where some states, I believe it was Louisiana and Texas, had limited the ability and denied the ability of people who were about to be executed to have their pastors present. And the, and the express concern was, you know, safety, good order. You, sure. you, know, you worry about somebody disrupting the process. It's a stressful situation. And the Supreme Court had weighed in, not in a fully argued case, but in some of these, you know, emergency motions and so on. But in Ramirez, they actually addressed the question squarely and and ruled for the for the condemned man that because he had a religious freedom right, that, you know, the denial of his pastor's presence was a burden on that right, and the government had to justify it, and the justices didn't think that the just that the state could demonstrate a need for an absolute prohibition, right? So Obviously, you have to regulate what goes on in an execution chamber if you're going to have executions. But as the justices pointed out, you know, lots of states do permit this. The federal government, when it executes people, permits it. So it was an interesting. I mean, it was a it was a win for the religious liberty side, and it was a win that didn't map onto some of these current sort of red versus blue culture war type debates. Obviously, the death penalty is a controversial question, and obviously, the justices disagree about prison administration and so on. But, but yeah, the, the the justices vindicated the right again, even of somebody who's 
being sentenced to death to still have his religious liberty rights protected to the extent possible. I mean, one of the challenges in, in religious liberty law is that you know most people think, or a lot of people think, that it's appropriate to accommodate religious people's special needs mm. if it doesn't cost us anything, if mm. it's easy. Mm. Right? The challenge is how to what extent are we willing to accommodate religious believers' special needs when it's maybe inconvenient? Yeah. Now, obviously, if someone wants to, you know, the, the example you always hear is if someone wants to sacrifice their child to Moloch, we're not going to allow that, right. right? But a lot of what we've seen in recent years about accommodations have involved this question, right? I mean, does the government really need to make the little sisters of the poor um, include contraceptives in their health care plan? Is it really necessary in order to fight covid to say that the casinos can be open, but the churches can't, mm-hmm. you know, these kind of, these, these questions of accommodations. And I think the prison case was a very stark example of it because you can see this is a context where the government is in complete control. It's a prison, mm-hmm. right? And the government's interests are very strong. And yet the justices still said that since we're committed to religious freedom in our law, we want to make sure that the government isn't sort of taking the easy way out. We want to make sure the government is accommodating to the extent it can. Yeah. I think it was, that was an interesting ruling. One thing I, that comes to my mind here is that in some of the previous cases we were talking about, it wasn't about one, a religion or, or not religion. It was about kind of the, the equal right in this case, non-discrimination on the basis of religion. In this case, it's – I don't know if this is the right way to put it – an allowance based on a request – on religious grounds. And so I want to – I wonder like what therefore counts as a religion or as religious expression because you can't just say, right, if you're the condemned person, I want to have X, Y, and Z in here. It has to be for religious purposes. So now the state has to determine whether it's religious or not. This is uh, a really nice point. Uh, so in sometimes when we're doing church-state cases, what the court tells us is you got to treat religion like other things. You can't discriminate against it, Right. right? You can't discriminate against religious speech. You can't discriminate against religious schools. So it's kind of a a neutrality. Yeah. But at other times, and you're totally right to point this out, what the free exercise of religion requires is actually special treatment, special solicitude Mm. for religion. And you're you're right. In in American law, some people disapprove of this, but in American law, religiously motivated exercise often gets special treatment. We don't have a general, like, if you really care about something, you get an exception. We treat religion differently, and that's very deeply rooted, and the use of religion in our Constitution was a conscious choice. But then that raises the question, as you said, what counts as a religion? My cat is my spiritual advice. And and I don't mean that just in jest, but these are the boundaries. And and, uh, (laughs) maybe you won't be surprised to learn that the Supreme Court has never told us clearly what counts as a religion Mm. and what doesn't. It's sort of a we-know-it-when-we-see-it kind of thing. Now, one of the tricks they've used, the law generally, is to say, well, the belief has to be sincere. So if someone comes forward and says, my cat is my spiritual advisor, they— They have to show some history of that. Yeah, their dodge is, well, you're not really being sincere. But, I mean, but you you raise a great point. I mean, at the time of the founding, you know, the founding fathers would have probably all said, well, I know what a religion is. I mean, I see it right there. It's, you know, being a Church of England person. Yeah. Obviously, our understanding of religion, especially for people who do theology and religious studies, you know better than I do, you know, the definition of religion is complicated. And what's the line between religion and culture? And and does it have to be theistic and all Mm -hmm. these kinds of things? The court, generally speaking, dodges those questions. Mm -hmm. And it, generally speaking, takes a pretty broad understanding. Like, okay, if you tell us it's religion, it is, unless we think you're just trolling us. Yeah. 
but uh, yeah, the, the court has not wanted to wade into this kind of tricky sociological, theological task of telling us what is a religion mm. and what isn't, you know. Paul Tillich and all that good stuff. Yeah. So, <laughs> so again, possibly something we'll be talking about in oh, a future for sure. conversation. For sure. Right, right. Well, then lastly, I mean, we've talked about some of these religious liberty cases that the court heard and decided on, but there's also one very interesting one that was a non-case. Tell us about the non-case. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people had their eyes on this dispute coming out of New York about New York's vaccination mandate for mm-hmm. employees. And New York did not have a an exception for for religious objectors, you know, as you know, in, in some contexts, vax mandates do have such exceptions, but New okay. York hadn't had one, and it, it had been challenged. And you know, you could imagine, you you could have imagined the Supreme Court being interested in that case. I mean, they 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 were interested in some of the the states that shut down religious gatherings, and they they ruled in favor of some churches in some of those cases. And you might have expected, you know, if if the narrative of the kind of you know, um, quote unquote, conservative Supreme Court just doing all this religion stuff were true, that maybe they would have reached out to take it and rule in favor of the religious objectors because the religious objectors lost in the courts below. Okay. But the justices didn't take the case. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the court denies review for all kinds of reasons. And the first thing every Supreme Court lawyer tells you is you can't assume that just because they denied it, they're telling you what they think. But I still think it's it's interesting that even as this court is very interested in religious liberty questions, they decided for whatever reason – not to take on New York's decision to have this vaccine mandate. Maybe it reflects just kind of an appreciation for the fact that, you know, the um, the questions about how to respond to COVID are still mm-hmm. very unsettled and so on. Maybe it just reflects a, a sense that they did a lot of religion cases this year <laughs> and didn't want to do another one. But it, it, it goes back to the discussion we were having about the the prisoner is, again, this issue of accommodations, right? When should a religious believer get special solicitude? And when is the government's interest strong enough to say no? And in this, you know, in the, in the prisoner case, they said, look, the government has an interest in prison safety, but that doesn't justify saying no right. speakers. Lurking in the background of this vaccine case would have been, well, what about the government's interest in making sure that all of its employees are vaccinated so that people can get back to work yeah. and the vaccine will yeah. stop, the, the virus will stop spreading and so on? Right. They, for whatever reason, they decided not to wade into that. Just out of curiosity, what is that – like how do they decide which cases – well, not how, but like what is it like? Is it the nine of them decide and there has to be a majority uh, vote? Yeah, to take it's a, a it's, so you know, the Supreme Court has about 9,000 petitions every year <laughs> Good grief. For, and they take about you know 70. Wow. And one of the things that you do when you're working up there – and this was you know my job a million years ago when I was up there <laughs> – is the law clerks read all 9,000 petitions. Do they really? And, or they divide them up among sure, themselves. Right. And then you write a memo, and that memo gets circulated, and the justices pick from among the 9,000 which 60 they want to take. As you might imagine, the majority of these cases have nothing to them. It's right. just somebody like, the Martians told me that the Supreme Court needs to take my case. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe. The, the court thinks of itself as having a very special role. It doesn't take every case, even cases where some, you know there might be a very sympathetic situation. The court takes cases in order to fix the law. Mm. So unless the case presents a legal question where there's dispute among the lower courts, they usually won't take it. So this can be controversial sometimes. I mean, even if they see it, let's say a criminal case, and it looks like somebody got the you know short end of the stick, the jury got it wrong, yeah. they're not going to take a case like that. Mm. What they look for is, okay, did the 
the circuit court in New England disagree with the circuit court in California, we need to resolve that dispute. Right, right. Or does state A have a position and state B have a different position? Yeah. We need to resolve that dispute. So that's what they're looking for. And is that by simple majority that they decide? Uh, so deciding whether to take it, you yeah. only need four. You only need four to take it. Yeah. Interesting. Five to win, four to take it. How about that? that that's not a constitutional rule. Sure. That's just their practice. That's their practice. It's a way of, I think, respecting the minority. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Rick, thank you so much for – you've now given us double the benefit of this conversation. Uh, our first episode where we talked about Dobbs v. Jackson and this one we went through a number of these different religious liberty cases that uh, were decided by the court in the summer of 2022. Thanks so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com. Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to redeem a radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU.